Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, this episode with David Cook is really amazing, I think. Uh, I've known David for a while, but I didn't really know anything about his story. And I really think each one of us will find some part of his story to resonate with. Uh, for me, it's especially the sort of organic nature of how the elements of his career that exist now came about, even though we sort of had his uh, singular focus missions earlier in his career. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. Before we get into that, I just want to take a second to tell you about a project I did with our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Houghton Horns was kind enough to send me a Bach C-190C trumpet and a Shires 4S8C trumpet, and I took those two instruments along with my own, and I compared them all against each other. I played various excerpts, and you could hear them each on individual horn, and at the end of the video, I actually did sort of a mystery excerpt where I never revealed which ones they were so people could debate in the comments section. So if you're interested in hearing these three different C trumpets compared against each other, I'm going to leave a link in the the description where you can check that out and you can let us know what you think uh, which horn is which as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am joined by David Cookie Cook. This is exciting for me, Dave. I've known you for a very long time, uh, although we haven't stayed in touch uh, much other than some, you know, internet type uh, inter interactions. And so, um, although I feel like I know you from our previous interactions and the stuff you put on the internet, this is going to be cool for me to actually get to talk to you and um, get to know you as a human being. And I hope that uh, the audience is going to get a lot because you're doing a whole bunch of different things. Currently, as we were just talking before we started, uh, David's playing in Jackson and Flint and the Saginaw Symphonies also in Columbus is just part of a, an active freelancing career. Uh, also in the Five Lakes Silver Brass Band. Uh, and then recently, I would say, um, I'm going to guess this like feels like maybe six months ago. You uh, started as mouthpiece designer for Venture. It may have been longer than that. It's just I can't remember from from time. Uh, and then many of like were, you know, the the thing that I think of when I think of you the most is just the content creation that you've done, the various uh, review type things, or you've written pieces or you've arranged pieces and recorded them. That's how I, that's like what I think of most. So obviously a very busy individual. So I'm incredibly grateful that you have given me some of your time so I can get to know you. My audience can get to know you a little bit and uh, we can just go. So before we start, I just appreciate you being willing to be on my show. It means a lot. Thanks so much. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here. 
Uh, let's get started with your backstory. Uh, let's yeah, see, uh, you know, how far back is up to you, but just where did you get started with trumpet or interested in music and kind of walk us through your educational path until now? Well, let's start right from the beginning. Uh, growing up, my mom played euphonium in the church brass group, just a small Lutheran church in, in Jackson. So some of my earliest memories were uh, like one very distinct memory I have is as like a toddler, basically running around the house to the, the saber dance by Kachaterian. It just like that was on the radio and I was just sprinting around the house as fast as I could. And then uh, a, a lot of memories of uh, being up in the balcony with uh, the organ and, you know, brass musicians for uh, stuff like uh, Easter, Christmas, um, you know, all, all the big church holidays. And they would pull out all the stops. And, you know, there's a there's a, a picture out there. If you go to my Facebook, it was one of my old profile pictures. I'm like two years old. My brother also played the trumpet when I was uh, when I was young and he he's a little bit older than me. So there's this picture where he's like 13 and I'm two and, you know, he's holding up the trumpet for me and I've got both both my hands on the mouthpiece and making a sound. So it's always been a, a part of me. Uh, I started beginning band in, in fifth grade. I really wanted to play the flute. We didn't have a flute. We had trumpets in the house because of my brother and I really wanted to play percussion. And I think that a lot of people wanted to play percussion but then their parents always shot it down. So uh, my my parents said, well, we have a trumpet. You can start on that. And if you really don't like it, you can move to something else. And I was hooked right off the bat, man. Um, you know, you had to fill out your like weekly practice card and you had to get like 20 minutes a week or something. And I was, you know, 20 minutes a day and in, in fifth grade and I think I, I, I just recently pulled one up. I was going through files and I found like, in sixth grade or something, I had like a hundred minutes in a week and it, it was just, you know, wow, right off the bat. Yeah. I'm yeah. Just, uh, so I, I was in that, I loved it, but I didn't know that I was going to do that. I was actually, by the time I got to high school, I was playing in like the youth symphony and stuff, uh, doing all state honors bands, you know, the typical high schooler stuff, but I wasn't sure that I was going to do music. Uh, I, I was really into chemistry actually. And I've always sort of, my backup plan has always been welding of all things. Um, so I, I was in AP chemistry and had finished that up. And for my senior year, I was going to be the, the lab assistant in the chemistry lab at school. And I went to a, a Allstate or something, like some sort of honors band, and I came back, and just regular life wasn't as cool as that was. Mm. Like that supercharged weekend of like intense rehearsals and performances. And I was quite bummed out, and my parents read into that, and my mom, the euphonium player, she actually went to Interlochen back, well, I'm not going to say back when, because uh, I don't think she wants me to say that. <laughs> but... um one one day after school, it was Friday. Uh, my parents picked me up, and there was there was a bag in the car. It was like, oh, uh, we're going up to Traverse City for the weekend. Uh, you, you've got a lesson with Ken Larson up at Interlochen. And it turns out it was more of like an audition lesson type situation. 
And so I auditioned to Interlochen, and I got in, and, well, I guess I'm doing music now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was at Interlochen, and while I was there, I I was sort of near the bottom of the bunch. The, the very first audition that they did in that school year, you could prepare whatever you wanted. So, uh, you know, I had learned the Artunian, and I worked my tail off, uh, tried really hard for that audition and I actually got placed uh, quite high. I was the principal in the wind ensemble. Now, either that was like fourth or second, the, you know, there were rumors going around that they would actually stack the number one player and the first person in the orchestra. Number two was in the wind ensemble. Mm -hmm. Three was in the orchestra. Four was in the wind ensemble. You know, either way, it was kind of high up there. Uh, It wasn't a huge class, but you know, it was, in the in the top half for sure and then the second audition happened we had our first series of concerts and the second audition was uh we only had two weeks to prepare and it was music for the next concert series and i was like second to last Mm. and uh i i was kind of messed up like not that that's a weird way of putting it but like my chops just everything you know you you can get to a certain point just by playing and that that's what I was doing, basically. I mean, I had good teachers in high school. And in fact, I actually, in the Jackson Symphony, I sit next to my high school teacher. And it's, it's really cool because I can, like, listen to him and go, oh, my gosh, you're so much better than I ever realized back then. And I'm, like, eternally grateful for, for how he set me up. But I, I still wasn't, like, I just had problems. And uh, Ken Larson got me sorted through those. And I remember it was a very difficult time, uh, you know, just thrown into the to the ring, so to speak, with a ton of playing and not, you know, there was a huge support network. But, you know, when you have all these demands put on you, especially as like the formative age, like a 16, 17, 18 can be really stressful. So, uh Ken helped me through that. All the colleagues that I had at Interlochen helped me through that. And by the time it came to like college audition season, I was actually in pretty good shape. So I, I, uh, for, for anybody that's listening to this, that's in high school, please do your, uh, your college auditions better than I did because <laughs> here, here's how I did it. Uh, Juilliard. I've heard of that. That's a cool place. Let's, let's apply an audition there. Oh, there's a lot of kids here that are auditioning at this place called Eastman. Let, let's audition there. Um, oh, I heard of this place called Oberlin, I think. Yeah, let's let's audition there. Um, oh, there's there's a couple of guys at uh, are auditioning at DePaul. Maybe I could go there with them. And then I knew Michigan State and Grand Valley State University because I grew up in Michigan. So mm-hmm. those were my backup schools. And I showed up with the exception of the two Michigan schools. I showed up to each of those auditions, not even knowing the name of the trumpet professor wow. that I was auditioning for. Uh, and, and Ken, Ken Larson, the trumpet teacher at Interlock, and he certainly had some things to say about that, but I just, I didn't know better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, did, I was quite successful. I got in everywhere except for Juilliard. Um, I think I might have been waitlisted there, but I didn't go, obviously. And so the question was Grand Valley, which I, I got in. I didn't have any scholarship, but I had a really good uh, relationship with the teacher there. That worked out. 
uh, Oberlin, and Eastman. And it came down to a, a money thing where uh, it was cheaper without any scholarship to go to Grand Valley than it was to either Oberlin or Eastman. And I had a good relationship with the teacher. And Grand Valley was doing all these amazing things with trumpet ensemble at that point. So, you know, it sounds like not a bad place. And I'm I'm close to home. You know, I, I was sort of, I grew up in the middle of the woods. Uh, went to a small private school. I went to public school for three years. And then I went to uh, another uh, boarding high school for, for another year. So I was like, not behind the curve, you know, just not really... Uh, uh, so social things wasn't my strong suit at that point. Uh, sure, I, I sure. can talk to people. It's fine. But I just like being thrown into an environment and being, you know, 12 hours away from home probably wasn't the best call at that point in my life. So uh, I went to Grand Valley. I uh, was quite successful there. I uh, had a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, was part of the uh, trumpet ensemble that went to NTC in 2011. So when I got to Grand Valley, it was sort of similar to Interlochen, where I, I just got thrown into the ring and I was playing all the time. And so my my educational experience was just a lot of playing and just burning through as much rep and, and, and playing stuff all the time. And I hurt myself several times. At Interlochen, I hurt myself. At Grand Valley, I hurt myself a couple times. Um, and and just as, as time went on, I got stronger. I got to be a better player. I sort of uh, figured out how to play the trumpet. You know, obviously I had a good teaching there, but uh, as time went on, I, I started to gain mastery of the horn. And then my uh, senior year, we had a, a uh, Rich Stozel went on sabbatical, and the person that came in and filled in for him on sabbatical, uh, he and I didn't work together super well. Mm -hmm. It was just a, you know, it just, it didn't work out. And uh, that was kind of a, a low point in my, my playing career because everything had been on the up and the up. And then all of a sudden, like, I, I'm struggling. And so that was sort of like, the first oh crap moment in my career. It was like, oh, do I really want to do this? And I remember like sitting in world music and, you know, looking at like community college programs for, uh, for welding. And I don't really, rem oh, I remember what it was that got me through it. It was, I was so close to having my degree done that it was so stupid. If like if I were to drop out, I was so close. Just at least at least finish the degree was what I was telling myself. Yeah. And then you know everything sort of calmed down. It came back and it was good. And then uh, I was not sure of like what to do. Was I going to do five years? Was I going to do four and a half years? How was I going to manage all that with like student loan repayments? And then uh, Rich announced. Hey, uh, I'm going to this school called McGill. It's in Montreal. Uh, so I'm going to be there in the fall. And he obviously did it like a lot more tactfully than that. And I had all these like plans to audition for grad school. And with that, all of them just went out the window. So uh, I applied to McGill 
in like May, like I I applied after the acceptance deadline and like everybody had decided where they were going to school and yeah yeah I, I sent in a tape for an audition because I couldn't make it to Montreal and so I, I got into McGill and uh, I got a, a pretty decent scholarship to do that and so I went to McGill and I started started studying with Paul Marcello and working with him was like a complete 180 as far as trumpet playing goes, you know, every, like I had learned how to do things one way, all of a sudden we're doing it a different way. And it, it partially comes from, you know, Paul is the principal trumpet in the Montreal symphony orchestra. Like that is an orchestra with a lot of French influence to it. So the style of playing up there is, is sort of like this hybrid almost between like French and European orchestras and like American orchestras. So, it was it was partially that and partially just need different schools of of thought and schools of teaching and uh so i i did pretty well in my masters too i would say there were some personal struggles that i i dealt with and some events and situations that i don't really want to delve into here but playing wise my my masters was about as good as it had been ever except my personal life was just an absolute mess and i was i was struggling a lot um wasn't really sure what i wanted to do and it was it was just rough and um several years back in my undergrad i went to this uh event called exploring the trumpet in greece i don't know if you've ever heard of that i have heard of this yeah yeah so I went to that and it was it was uh it was uh 2013 that I went to that and there I met a wonderful teacher. I met a lot of great people and I worked with David Hickman while I was there and and that was really cool, but I ran into or I met Brad Ulrich there, who's the teacher at I believe it's Eastern Carolina University. If I'm wrong, Brad, please don't uh <laughs> don't don't get upset. Um but I, I show up to my lesson one day at Paul's house and Brad is on the couch and I hadn't heard from him in several years. And I just go, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> he goes, Oh, Paul and I have been best friends. We grew up together. Like, oh, that's cool. So I, I talked to him. We caught up a little bit and I, I had my lesson and went off and did whatever I was doing during the week. And the, the next lesson I showed up to, Paul goes, yeah, so uh, Brad said uh, you guys reconnected at my house. And, uh, you know, he said you just seemed really scattered. I was like, well, yeah, kind of. And, and so Paul did this thing to me. And maybe he doesn't want me to talk about this. Maybe he does. It's, it's, but it, it was really, really, really meaningful to me. And he goes... I need you to look me in the face, look me in the eyes, and tell me that you want to play trumpet. And until you do that, and I believe you, we're not gonna we're not gonna have another lesson. And I was like, oh. Wow. And it was, you know, and he goes, and if you don't, that's completely okay. But you need to decide. You can't just do this this uh halfway thing because it's not not working for you 
and it's kind of a waste of everybody's time and money. It wasn't like that, but it was it was just very, you know, you need to you need to get your act together, basically. And I had just given a really terrible master's recital. I tried I tried live streaming it. And uh, thankfully, the live stream died like halfway through the first piece. <laughs> so there's there's no uh, records of it happening. But and there there were a couple things that had led up to that master's recital. It was um, I got a new pianist like a month out after we had already scheduled. And I was kind of stupid how I did it. I had uh, auditioned for the the um, the Richmond Symphony. Mm-hmm. Like two days before my master's recital. Okay. Then I got home, and the night before my master's recital, I did a rock gig for like 800 bucks. Um, because that was a you know, a gig you can't really that's like a chunk of change yeah. for playing two tunes. So, yeah, I was kind of an idiot about it. Um, but it wasn't, I, I like to think it wasn't entirely my fault because like there were a lot of things that I had worked on with, with the, uh, my my accompanist, and then um, the the day of, like something happened to his binder on the metro, and like we had to reprint new music just before the recital. So like a lot of the things we had rehearsed, he no longer had markings in his parts, and it, it, you know it was just a thing. So that was kind of <laughs> like sort of a low point. And then you know Paul and I went out after my recital, and that's when he was like, hey you need to you need to make this decision and it took me the better part of a week to figure it out and then i had decided yes i do cuz one of the things when i was uh when i was at interlochen i wanted to like go down the sort of like more jazz and commercial route and Ken Larson used to be a, a studio musician. You know, he talked, you know, he told us about in our lessons, you know, his day would be wake up, do a studio gig, go work, and then go play Beauty and Beast at the night in the evening. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. With studio musician work, you're doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't matter what it is. And when I got to Grand Valley, that was my goal when I went in. But I, I sort of got thrown into the the into the ring, as I said before. And I was playing way too much, and I wasn't able to keep all of it going. My first year, it was sort of all right because there were you know some some older guys in the studio. But my second year, they had all graduated, and I couldn't do everything. At least not without hurting myself. So something had to go and it was the the big band because that was not a requirement for my degree. And so I had always gone along thinking, I just want to play the trumpet and be able to support my eventual family. Like, I don't care what it is, as long as I'm playing the trumpet. And somewhere along the, the, the path, I had gotten into my head that I had to be an orchestral trumpet player. And then with this uh, this recital and then having to talk to Paul, I was like, okay, yes, I want to play the trumpet. That's what I want to do. But at the time, I was still like, I need to be an orchestral trumpet player. And I was, you know, I was, I was doing pretty well. Uh, I was subbing with Montreal at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, playing was, was going quite well. And then uh, I finished up my master's and a lot of like the personal struggles and situational things that I was dealing with ended when I, when I finished my master's. So that was, that was a good thing. And then uh, one night Paul texted me, he goes, Hey, you need to send your resume to this email address. So I sent it off and I, so what, what did I just send my resume to? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, for the Thunder Bay symphony. Um, they need a, a principal trumpet for a season. There's a, a, a leave of absence going on. And so I sent it in and I didn't really hear anything back for the longest while. And then I went to music Academy and while I was there, I got to work with, uh, Professors Butler and Geyer and got to work more with Paul. And while I was at Music Academy, all of a sudden the wheels started turning for the Thunder Bay gig. And I was really unsure because Thunder Bay is kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's a cool city with lots of stuff going on. And uh, I really enjoyed my time up there. But you're also eight hours away from pretty much anything. Wow. And I wasn't. Like, I, I just hadn't heard anything about the orchestra. And I, I was, like, sort of wiffle-waffling on, do I, if I get offered this, do I take this? And so I asked Barbara Butler, and her response was, are you stupid? It's a job. Take it. <laughs> Sounds like Barbara. <laughs> yep. So um, I uh, I ended up getting that and I moved up there and I was the principal trumpet in the Thunder Bay Symphony for a year. Uh, it was a one year, like a leave of absence core replacement type thing. And while I was there, I learned quite a lot of lessons because it was a really small orchestra. And when I say really small, you might think like, Oh yeah, it's kind of small. I'm like, no, it's, it was 30 core members. Mm. So the, the brass section consisted of two trumpets, one trombone and two horn players. And then if they needed additional for, uh, you know, bigger concerts and stuff, then they would hire people in. Uh, But for an entire season of full-time work, I might add, like, you know, it was like a seven to 10 services a week type of deal. I did all of that without an assistant or an associate. And even though it's a, a smaller orchestra, that's still just a lot of a lot of playing. You have to learn how to, you know, it was you know things that you don't learn in school. Like, oh, how do I manage practicing yeah. for all of this? And then the other thing that you don't learn in school, because often you're trading off stuff, is like, okay, how do I navigate a, a, a season without an assistant or an associate? And then other things like, oh, you're you're young. And this is your first gig and you've got nothing but stars in your eyes and and you want to go up and up. Maybe don't tell the flute player that spent her entire career in that orchestra that you can't wait to get on to a bigger, better job. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Things, things like that. Um, And it wasn't like it wasn't malicious or anything. It was just I'm an idiot sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So. I, I learned a lot and it was, it was a lot of other interesting things that I never, you know, school doesn't prepare you for. Like I played my first Beethoven nine while I was up there. And so I was super gung ho and super excited. 
and I was coming at it from a completely different place from, you know, somebody that spent their entire career in the orchestral world and they're retiring and this is their seventh Beethoven nine and they're sick and tired of the piece by this point. I'm like, oh, this is different. But thankfully, uh, I managed to to escape without saying anything too stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there was one time, I, I feel like I can say this now, uh, one of the other things that, you know, school doesn't really prepare you for adequately, I think, is that a lot of orchestras don't just play the classical music. Like, oh, you don't always play Mahler and Beethoven and, and Bruckner and stuff. You, you play a lot of Mozart. And, you know, people are aware of that because you always hear the adage, oh, it's Mahler and Bruckner that win you the job, but Mozart that keeps you the job. Well, there's a lot of other things that you have to play too, like Sinatra shows or this week you're accompanying a rock band. Um, and so we had this Sinatra show and I was sweating. Cause like some of those parts are not easy and not for what your typical orchestrally trained trumpet player, like somebody that's been just down this orchestra only path for so long. And so I, I was nervous and I was like, hey, like maybe you guys should consider like hiring a lead player for this one. Well, it turns out that wasn't in the budget. And so I had to make do. Then I was sweating, man. And then I actually got the book and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can do this. Cool. I don't need to stress out about this as much. Cause you know, a lot of a lot of those like charts have like A's and B flats in them. And I could maybe hack that now, but couple of years ago I couldn't and we it was also Sinatra charts and we had this uh the Michael Buble feeling good yeah. arrangement on there too and uh the the guest conductor or the the assistant conductor I should say not guest uh the assistant conductor up in Thunder Bay he and I were actually at McGill together so that was that was a thing like all of a sudden like you're you're student colleagues and then all of a sudden like I'm in the hot seat and he's up on the podium. Mm -hmm. Like how do you navigate that? Um, but so we, we were playing this Michael Buble thing and that was the one I was most stressed about, but it was a really watered down arrangement and he stops and he goes, uh, Hey David, uh, can you play the high C there? And I'm like, well, I did. And he goes, no, the high C. And what, I just you want said, like a double C. Yeah, yeah, because that's what's in the that's what's in yeah. the chart. Can you just do um, that for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> sure. And sure. I and I just said no, I yeah. can't do that. And the next words out of my mouth were almost, "If I could do that, I wouldn't be here right now." It's a good thing you didn't say that. Yes, and and in my head, the backstory behind that was. Well, like I've always been in this interested in like this more commercial trumpet track career, but the the upper register was largely one of the things that for better or worse in my own head was the reason I didn't go down that cuz I never just had a I always had like a workable upper register but not something like, you know, guys like the you know, there's um couple young guys out there that are absolutely killing it like uh will leathers is an example of that like the, he can play anything and he could do anything on the horn and uh, uh um 
there, there's just there's a couple of them out there that I'm like, man, if I sounded like that when I was that age. Seriously. <laughs> but then <yeah>. again, <laughs> I think a lot of us feel that way. Yeah, um, sorry to interrupt. It's just interesting. Damn. Just listening to you, you know, tell your story. It's I feel like you and I have had more similar experiences than I'd realized. You know, when I got to Indianapolis, that's a really big pops orchestra. Um, yeah. it's, that's, they'll sell out, you know, three or four shows of something. It's very popular. And my, one of my, my very first pop show, we played the, the book to, uh, singing in the rain, which is, doesn't have any screaming stuff, but it's style. You know what I mean? Like playing in those styles. Yeah. And, um, I was sent like a CD of like what the conductor will see. And he was like, you need to like, make sure you know what's going on here. And I was an idiot, so I just sort of looked at it, and you know. And then I got to rehearsal, and I walked up to the conductor, and I said, uh, "I'm really excited to to be doing this. This is a pretty cool book." And then I said, "This isn't what I normally do, but I'm pretty excited for it." And then he, I, you know, I was just trying to acknowledge exactly what you're saying. Like I am trained to play Mahler. That's the thing that I do, and. He's, he looked at me and he said, I don't want to hear that. This is what yeah. you do. And then he walked off stage. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I went back to my seat and played the show. And it went it went well. Like the whole week went really well. Um, and then I found out later that when he walked off stage, he walked straight to the personnel manager's office and was like, is this guy going to be able to do this? Like, are we going to have to hire somebody else to do this? You know, and in Indianapolis... Like Joey Tartell is, you know, in yeah. our South and he's, he's, he just wrote a blog post about how he could come in and read something. So it's like, not like they didn't have somebody or people that they could call to replace me. And you know, the uh, difference between you and me too, is I was going for tenure in this orchestra that plays this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's very funny how I look back at a time like that. And I thought that was the right thing to say in that moment, you know, and it's kind of similar to what you're describing. It's like, you know, it's almost like we're all to some degree going to make some of these mistakes. Cause you just like, you don't know what you don't know. I suppose that's a way to put yeah. it, you know? And, and, and it's like school doesn't prepare you for that. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. Like I feel like my <laughs> teachers tried, but mm -hmm. it's like almost as if, and maybe, I, maybe this is a question to ask you. I feel like I had teachers that were investing in me to be a professional in this way and to try to help me figure these things out. But at the same time, I'm not sure how much of it I thought was necessary, right? Like I had my opinion about, oh, that's not as big of a deal as they make it seem or whatever. Like, do you feel that your teacher, your, not, maybe not your teachers, but just the education did or didn't prepare you? Or do you feel like you were prepared uh, from your education, but you yourself had some things you had to just figure out the hard way? All of the above. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was at Music Academy, uh, professors Butler and Geyer gave this really amazing class that was like the do's and don'ts of professional conduct. So I had learned a lot from that. Um, you know, I, when I was in Montreal, in addition to working with, with Paul Markello, I worked a bit with Chris Smith, who you, you've had on a couple times. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, he, he knocked a lot of sense into me. Um, I feel like, he, in particular, working with him, sort of focused on a lot more of these, like, things that you don't get in school, maybe because he wasn't my teacher through the school. Um, actually, he, he on several occasions told me not to call him my teacher 
Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, another example would be uh, Ken Larson. Uh, I, I've been playing with the Traverse Symphony a bit, and Ken's the, the trumpet teacher at Interlochen, and he's the principal trumpet there. So it's another example of I get to sit next to my teacher, and it's after the fact. And I, you know, the first service that I had back, I hadn't seen Ken in several years. I mean, pandemic and whatnot. Sure, but, sure. Um, I, I was just like, there were so many things that you told me that just went completely and totally over my head, like more than 50%. <laughs> and I'm still like, I'll still like do something and be like, oh, that's what he meant. And it's that way with all of my teachers. You know, even even like somebody that I randomly had one one lesson with. So I, I feel like, yes, there were a lot of things that I was told that either just went over my head or in one ear out the other. And then there were like a lot of situations that, you know, just don't come up in your typical one on one settings like the, hey, don't tell the flute player who's had her career in this orchestra that you can't wait to move on to a bigger, better orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would probably not assume somebody would do that, so you might not have, <laughs> you might not have that conversation. Um, I don't want to stop you from your yeah, yeah. from your from your story. I just thought it was an interesting for me. It's an interesting. There's a, a, a few parallels. It sounds like in our uh, stories. So um, it sounds like you were you were sort of in the Thunder Bay area of your story. If you want to yeah. try to pick back up. So uh, I, I would really like to explain myself with this. If I could do that i wouldn't be here right now because <laughs> I, I just want to get to the punchline of that in my head the thinking was if i could have done that i wouldn't have gone down the classical music route mm -hmm. i would have gone full steam ahead into this this commercial route so to anybody from thunder bay that's listening like that's what i meant by that <laughs> um <laughs> so uh i played the season in thunder bay and uh, it, the position, you know, I was on a one-year contract, and the position opened up that uh, Mary, the former principal trumpet there, she went on a leave of absence because she got a teaching gig. And for one year, she tried doing both. And, you know, one was in Victoria, which is way on the west coast of Canada, and then Thunder Bay. So it's really hard to manage both. So she, she said, hey, can I have a leave of absence? I want to try teaching for a year and see if I like that. So she announced her retirement from the orchestra while I was there. And uh, they held an audition. An audition which I was not entirely qualified to take. I have to, I have to say that because it was for Canadian permanent residents and citizens only. Mm -hmm. That's pretty common and, in Canadian orchestras to do a national audition. And then if no one wins, they open it up internationally, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I applied and they, they let me take the audition. Um, nobody ever questioned it, but it was one of those things where in the back of my head, I always knew like, oh, if I win this, that's going to be, we might have a problem with this. And, um, one of the things that Professor Geyer told me, uh, at Music Academy was if, if you, you can't or won't take the job, don't go to the audition. Because somebody that really wants it and would have otherwise won if you didn't show up, you just stomped on them, right. basically. Right. Uh, but I really did want this gig, 
and I, I felt qualified. So I uh, applied and I actually talked it over and they were like, yeah, there would probably be some red tape, but there might be an exception based off the fact that you're on a work permit and you've been playing with us for a year. And uh, I didn't get the gig. Uh, I was, I it advanced, I think, once or twice. I can't remember, but I, I ended up not getting it. And that sucked. <laughs> like, to, to play a gig for a year and then not get it, which is, and I know after you released your, it was early on in your podcast when you talked about your experiences in Indianapolis. Yeah. I, I had actually reached out for everybody else. I had actually reached out to Ryan and, and was like, hey, I'm I'm sort of going through a very similar thing with this right now. Like, it's really cool to hear this and to hear that there's something going on for you after that. Because it felt like that was the end of it. It was like, well, crap. I can play the trumpet, but I can't win auditions. Yeah. You know, I, I was playing the gig for a year. I know I can do the gig, but I didn't win the audition. And then I had several bad auditions in a row and it sort of all culminated with uh it was the louisville audition and i knew i was going late in the day and i show up and i was the last person there because they had told us to arrive at five and i was there at four and everybody else had been even earlier than i was and so like oh you're the last person here so you're gonna go last in prelims like, don't, don't tell me that, man. <laughs> and so I knew I was the last person in prelims. And I got through two and a half excerpts. I didn't even make it through the entire third excerpt. And it was like I was dealing with the whole Thunder Bay thing. I was dealing with a bad breakup. I was dealing with knowing that I was the last person in prelims. And I had had a couple bad auditions prior to that. And that was the point when I was like, okay, I can't do this. I can play the trumpet. I can do the gig, but I can't do auditions. And so I had told myself that I was done. I was just going to do everything that I had already agreed to and not say yes to anything else. And so I showed up to the next gig or whatever it was that I had agreed to prior and I was going to, you know, keep practicing, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to stop playing and then show up and do a bad job on gigs. I, I can't do that to myself. Like I have too much personal pride for that. But, yeah, yeah, um, right. so like a week later I show up to this, uh, rehearsal in Flint that I was subbing for. And the personnel manager for Flint is also the personnel manager for Saginaw. So I show up and, you know, say hi. And he goes, hey, David, are you going to be at that audition in Saginaw? I'm like, audition Saginaw? He goes, oh, yeah, it's uh, Second Trumpet. It's uh, next week. I really hope to see you there. I was like, is it too late to apply? So I, I showed up to this audition because he said he wanted to see me there. I didn't want to disappoint him, not even as a personnel manager, because I was done. But I did not want to disappoint Greg as a person. And I showed up and I won it because that's how things work. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was so incredibly freeing to be absolutely done and just show up and, and play an audition round. Like it was the kind of audition where 
they called it off the first round. They didn't even hear a second round. And yeah, it was like eight people showed up or whatever. So it's not that big of a deal. But I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't quit. And then I was playing in Saginaw and I was still subbing in Flint a lot because uh, Jeff Lewandowski had just left town. And I sort of started like filling in all of like when he when he left, I just sort of took over everything that he got. And now I think officially I have. No, there was one thing that he had that I didn't take over. But uh, so I started freelancing around Michigan. And then this audition for Flint came up and it was the the full time for the position that I had been playing subbing. And. I had figured out that the key to success was to sort of not care. That's uh, that's a very blunt way of putting it, but like you need to not have that attitude. I need this. I need to get the money from this so I can have a career. I can survive. I can make rent, you know, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Even though I've been living at home and don't have rent. Uh, it was, I, I figured out that I needed to sort of divorce myself from this idea that I needed the gig. But obviously that would be a really cool position to have. So how do I do that? And I didn't ever figure it out. But my uh, my approach was to do a, a crap ton of mock auditions. And this was still pre-pandemic. So it wasn't like an issue of seeing people, but I live far away from everybody else. I didn't really have, I don't have any like local friends, the closest uh, people to me are like 45 minute drive at the very least. And so I decided I was going to record a mock audition every day. And then two weeks out, I was going to do two. And then one week out, I was going to do three every day. No matter what, I was going to send those rounds that I recorded unedited complete to at least one person on the internet. And I don't care if they listen to it, but I just put that pressure on myself that this is going out there. And it was, it was, it was helpful. I got some feedback, which was cool, but just that idea that like, oh, if I completely and royally mess up on this, that's out there. And that could get turned into like the next Bolero fail video. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen that one. Um. So I, I was sort of putting that on myself, and it was kind of a small list for Flint. It was only like 15 or 16 excerpts. And it was Wednesday of audition week. And I'm like, man, I don't, like, I still care too much about this, but I'm kind of at the point where I've played everything enough that it, it's okay. And then Wednesday rolled around, and I got to, like, the second round of three that day. I was like, I'm sick and tired of these excerpts. I just want to be over with this. Wait, that's the key. (laughs) So um, I had just played these excerpts so many times I was sick and tired of them. And then I went and played really well and I got the gig. And as far as audition success, uh, I had taken a couple bigger auditions uh, in the meantime and I was quite successful i would say by you know standards uh i think the last 14 auditions i've taken i've advanced at every single one of them 
I've won three. I've finaled in like five or six. Um, so I, you know, on that front, yeah, I've, I've sort of been successful, but then COVID happened and I did win one audition after COVID that was for another local orchestra in Michigan, Jackson. So between those three, I've got a pretty, well, when things are going the way they should without a pandemic, it should be a fairly decent playing schedule. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like my career thus far, as far as like orchestral playing. Mm -hmm. And I know we wanted to talk about the recording stuff. Yeah. So I, have a, I have a quick question first oh, yeah, before we, it. uh, before we move on. Um, well, okay. Do you teach at all? Um, currently no. Okay. Cause it's an interesting thing for me. Like I've dealt with some, some things that I wish I would have known. Maybe somebody told me, maybe I didn't quite get it. Kind of like what you described, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and it certainly has affected the way I try to communicate information to people. Um, you know, I've realized so much of my platform at first was I want to try to say things that would have convinced myself at 18 to care about what I care about now, <laughs> but I don't think that's possible. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, if you have any feelings like that, when you talk to people, um, are you trying to impart some of this information? Do you sort of take it as, well, I had to learn those lessons the hard way. And so, you know, I'll let people kind of, you know, not, maybe not like encourage them to struggle or create <laughs> hardship in their life, but you know, that they need to go through it. Uh, I basically, the question I'm asking is, are you someone that's trying to give people the lessons to, so that they don't have to go through it? Or do you recognize that there's value to going through it and you have a different approach? Like, I don't know. I feel like people who struggle, it's a really interesting question for me. Yes. The, the short answer is yes. I tell people. Absolutely. Like I, you know, I, I went through some, some kind of bad stuff. Like, I almost lost a job because of something I said because I'm an idiot. Like, oh, I can't wait to get to bigger and better places. Um, and, like, nobody needs to go through that. Like, so absolutely I try telling people. Uh, and, in fact, I actually, in the before times, uh, I, uh, I had a master class that I put together and I was taking around to, to various places, and it was – titled stuff that I learned after school that I really wish I had learned in school. Yeah. And it, it was all that. And it was like, I had a section that was like freelancing do's and don'ts, sort of like what uh, professors Butler and Geyer had. Um, but it was more tailored to freelancing stuff. Like with Google calendar, you have zero excuse to double book yourself ever with Google maps. You have zero excuse to be late. Uh, you know, just like everything that I had seen gone wrong, I had like taken note of and I put into this master class, like show up wearing the proper clothes, bring the right <laughs> trumpets, bring the right mutes, bring the right mouthpieces, bring the right music, you know, show up to the right venue. <laughs> um, so that was one. Uh, another one was talking about like, okay, what are the differences? Like, what did I learn on the job? You know, the things like, hey, don't say that thing that sounds perfectly harmless to your brain, but might actually be kind of hurtful. Um, uh, you know, playing differences of like what it's like on the game. And that's the one that I find is the, the hardest to communicate is just like 
what it's like to play in a real orchestra versus to play in like a, a university group or or like a like a community ensemble just like the intensity that you need to put out of the end of your bell is is something that can't really be replicated you know you you just don't get it until you've done it yeah and that i would was, agree for sure somebody told me that once and i had my very first rehearsal with montreal and the first thing I did when I got home was I messaged him. I'm like, hey, you were right. I didn't get it. Now I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. But uh, for all, all the other stuff, like, yeah, I, I put together a master class. Um, and that was a really interesting thing. I put together this master class, but I wasn't – okay. I need to take a step back here. I was so orchestrally focused – in my master's because in my undergrad, I did no fewer than 12 international solo competitions. And I was, you know, consistently, you know, in the top 10 or whatever. Uh, I, I even won two, um, but I, I got burned out from that. So in my master's, I was like, I'm going to do the orchestra thing and I hate solo playing. And now if you go to my YouTube channel it's like <laughs> <laughs> the opposite um when i put together that uh that uh master class i think something that that sort of shot myself in the foot was i was like hey i'm gonna be in this area at this time i would love to come give a master class and you know here's the topic and yada 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 and everybody would come back and say well is it a master class or is it a master class and a recital and I didn't have a recital put together. And I feel like I lost a few of those opportunities to come to a school and, and talk about that because I didn't have this recital put together. Mm. And so that's, you know, one of those interesting things, just like a, a side note, is that that sort of hurt me, not being so orchestrally focused. Uh, where was I going with this? You, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I totally yeah. agree with you, though. It's like when I did Elzor Smith, like everything changed, you know, like obviously like do, being successful in something like that would change it. But kind of what you're describing, it's like all of a sudden I was like, oh, maybe I, orchestral playing is not the only thing that I could do. Maybe I could be successful in other types of playing. It's kind of weird how we can put ourselves in a box like that. Yeah. I remember where I was going with that. So the third part of my, uh, my master class was technology and music integration. And this was uh, before the pandemic. So uh, I feel like most people have at least more of a grasp on, on, on that facet of things now. But uh, even back in high school, I would uh, use a recorder in my, my practice sessions. I had a little Zoom H2 mm -hmm. that was on the, the required materials list for interlocking is a Zoom H2, the old school one that was gray, not even the black one. And uh, so I, I would record things in, in practice. And I was always sort of used to that. And then later on in my undergrad, I got a, a USB microphone and I was, I was like, I was like that guy. I would always have to get to a practice room early and set up the microphone, and I would would listen back to things. And and Jeff Lewandowski got me hooked on listening back to things at half speed, which 
you know, if you think you sound bad in a recording, try <laughs> playing it back at half speed. Then you think you sound really bad. Uh, but once you start figuring it out and you can sound good at half speed, then it sounds really good at full speed. Um, so I had always been accustomed to to recording myself. And it was actually Jeff Lewandowski. He had won a position in the Army Field Band. And he actually, for a while, lived in Jackson. And he was only like 20 minutes from where, where I live now. And so I visited him one time. And I was like, hey, man, you, you finally won this audition. What do you feel like it was that put you over the edge? And he goes, oh, well, I went down to Sweetwater and... I bought a ribbon microphone and an interface and I recorded myself and I feel like I could hear so much more detail that I was able to, you know, get more information from recording myself. And that's sort of what put me over the edge. Hmm. And I go, well, 500 bucks. I feel like I can do that. I can swing that. So I went down to Sweetwater and I quickly blew over that $500 budget. I, I spent that much on a microphone alone, but it was a significant upgrade in microphone. I got a, a an SE Voodoo VR2 ribbon microphone, uh, and it was a great first microphone. And so I started recording myself with that, and it, I bought it purely as a practice tool, just so I could hear what I was doing better. And then somebody asked me, well, how much better is it? Can you, like, send me some examples? So I went and I recorded the flugelhorn section from Eric Morales' Cyclone for, for Five Trumpets on both. And I posted the video of just the flugelhorn section. And I got a really great response from the general public, like, oh, that was awesome. You should do the whole piece. So I recorded the whole piece. And then Marcus Grant reached out to me and he was like, hey, it was pretty cool. Do you want to record this uh, Hummel trumpet concerto that I arranged for seven trumpets plus soloist? And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then somebody else reached out to me. Hey, do you want to record this? Oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I guess I multi-track now. And like the first cyclone, like the first cyclone took me like two months to put together. And now I'm pretty sure I could do at least two days, if not one day, to put together, like, an entire thing. Yeah. From, uh, so I, I've gotten so much quicker at it. But that all happened, like, 2019, early 2020. And early 2020, I had decided I was going to, instead of posting things to my uh, my personal Facebook page, I was going to start, like, a, a, a fan page. That way... I could have people interact with me, but still keep my friends list to friends. And like, if I want to post something kind of personal, I can without, you know, some stranger halfway across the world that I'm never going to meet finding out about that too. And I was, you know, I was doing all the things I was freelancing. I was recording and it was, it was a pretty good time. And then the world shut down. And one of the composers I had agreed to to do a piece for, uh, she she messaged me and goes, "Hey, uh, since you don't have anything better to do, you want to finally record that piece you said you would?" I was like, "Oh crap! Yeah, I should probably do that." <laughs> um, 
And so I, you know, at, at the beginning, we thought it was just going to be a couple weeks. So I was like, okay, I can do this in a couple weeks. And, you know, I recorded the first one and then I recorded the second one and a couple weeks turned into a couple months and started recording more stuff and more stuff. And I was so burned out of, of solo repertoire, but this was an outlet for me to do more soloistic things. And it, it just, it blew up, man, to the point where I actually started a trumpet competition, <laughs> something that I never thought I would do. And I, I started that with uh, Marcus Grant and Brandon Dix. We just had our, uh, actually our, our second season just finished up where we had uh, the second um, second year of it, basically. And we're, we're a go for year three, but that's going to happen summer 2023. Uh, and if you want to find more about that, uh, check out trumpetmtc.org. But uh, the whole recording thing just blew up. And then uh, there was a, 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 a musician local to me. His name's Ken Wyatt. And he reached out to me and he worked for the local paper in addition to being a musician. And uh, he was just astounded that I lived local to him. And he says, Hey, I would love to collaborate sometime, but you know, there's this whole pandemic going on. Can I send you a recording of me playing piano and you record the solo part over top of that? I mean, you've obviously got the, the audio video skills to do that. So I started doing that and I started recording a whole bunch of these, uh, old, uh, like turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, like late 19th, early 20th century folk songs and, and stuff as well as a whole bunch of Salvation Army cornet solos. And then uh, a composer by the name of Jonathan Mead reached out to me from Wales. He had seen all of my videos with Ken and he said, Hey, do you mind playing this? And so I, I recorded that and that was with uh, MIDI accompaniment. So he sent me like the actual MIDI file exported from the, uh, what, what do you call it? The notation software. And I imported that into logic and I, I used a sound font. I used like the stock logic piano. And I did this video of that playing along to MIDI sampled piano and that got a good reception and he was thrilled by it. So I started playing more of his works and he got a, a sponsor, uh, a, a deal with Brookwright music run by Andrew Wainwright. And so I started recording stuff for Brookwright, and Brookwright brought me on as an artist. So I record things for Brookwright now. And this whole solo career, sort of, which is almost exclusively in the digital realm at this point, has come from buying a microphone for a practice tool. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating how it just sort of organically came about you know you didn't i've really wondered about this like do we have to like decide that something is gonna happen and that's the only way or it sounds i mean obviously the answer is no because you just told us a story about how that wasn't the case but rather you just sort of pursued something that uh you not only were passionate about but it was like you wanted to learn about it you know you wanted to yep. learn how to do it a little bit better 
And then that led to some opportunities and that led to some more opportunities. It's kind of like the deliberate practice model of just slowly improving over time. And then obviously you're providing something. You were just slightly ahead of the curve from the rest yeah. of us. You know, you, I, I was extremely lucky, I would say. Yeah, I mean, Patrick, um, you know Patrick Oliverio too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed him on here about the same exact thing where it was like I started doing these multi-track trumpet ensemble things because I was interested in doing that, and now he's got a video production company, you know? And and it's amazing to see how in a similar way it just organically grew into something that has its own life. Well, and it's really interesting that you bring up Jen and Patrick because when they moved up here – I felt threatened almost. I'm I'm not sure. Like I was obviously extremely happy for Jen to get the job at Oakland. And I was happy that Patrick was back in town because he, he was at MSU and then he went to, back to Kansas City. Now he's uh, back in Michigan. I was like almost threatened because I was back in uh, January of 2020. I decided I was going to take this recording like that was the whole reason I wanted to start a, a Facebook page was I had decided I was going to invest in a little bit more equipment and start up like a, a production company of my own. And as it turns out, uh, January 2020 was the absolute worst possible time to invest in equipment to work with other people in a close one-on-one -on -one right, setting right. where they're blowing particles out there, you know, I, I we're not going to get into playing masks and, and, and stuff. Um, but so the, the Facebook page actually came along as an example of, Hey, if I record you, you can get the sound quality. So it, it turned from practice tool to, Hey, if I record you, you can get this kind of quality. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic set in and it was like, well, I could do all this other stuff, but I was like in the heart of trying to get like cookies music as the, the production company up and running. And then Jen and Patrick moved to town and I was like, Oh no, they're trying to do well. Like Patrick at least is trying to do this exact same thing as me. And you know, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Like I, I love working with them and I, I love to see them and hang out with them. And like, in no way are we stepping on each other's toes, which is is really cool yeah. that we've been able to to navigate that. But I know when I when they first moved to town, I was like, oh crap. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't know if I'm gonna name names, but there are some people. Well, I'd say you were one of them at the very beginning. Where when I started to post more on social media and to create content, hoping to generate some interest in whatever things I was doing, like I would see you post a thing and it would get a whole bunch more views than what I was getting. And I was like, ah, this sucks. You know, and there are other people yeah. in the same sphere posting things. And it's like, I feel, I guess if I'm just laying all my cards out on the table, I was just mad for a while that it just felt mm -hmm. like, I just felt like everyone should just care because I'm saying it. And what yeah. I found interesting was it made me better because at, once I got over, once I realized that like everybody gets to share, like everybody gets to do this. It's not like yes. there's only a few. 
I started to ask, well, okay, how either how am I going to separate myself or how am I going to help people understand? Maybe I don't have to actually become, quote, better. Maybe I need to become better at sharing what it is that I do uh, and make that more clear. It just made me all around a better, a more effective communicator. It helped me to understand. And I, I haven't, re I don't really feel like I'm seeing the fruit of any of those labors in any uh, sort of demonstrable way, but it just feels like it's given, uh, it, it has helped me narrow down like what it is that I do. And then it's, I just, you know, you just, the time it takes to find the people that you're going to interact with. And there's times where there were more and there's times where there's less, but yeah, I, I have found I've grown considerably as a person in a way similar to what you just described where you like acknowledge, Oh no, like there's competition over here. What am I going to do about that? And I, it's just been interesting to see how um, I have changed through that process. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny that you, you mentioned me cause I was like, Oh, I'm trying to do this thing. And then Brian just came out with a new episode. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like there's that instinct, like every time I see somebody trying to like do something online, like I just have this split second where I'm like, Ah, yeah. Encroaching on my territory. And then like, as soon as that subsides, I'm like, no, that's really cool. Like bravo for putting that together. Like, that's awesome. Like here, I'm going to share this. Yeah. And, and like, I, I think that's just a me problem that I got to work through. But, um, and I, I think that sort of comes from less about like the whole content creation thing, but like sort of like this, um, uh, trying to think what's the best. It's like the gig lifestyle that we live. Like if I don't have the gig, somebody else has it. Yeah. It's a very scarcity mentality or zero sum game, mm. right? What are those, but maybe both ideas. It's like, if I'm not there, somebody else is there. If I'm not mm. teaching this student, somebody else is teaching this student. So you have to try to get it all for yourself versus the, like what I've learned. And I'm, maybe you could speak to this in a second is like, if I want to learn how to deadlift, I'll watch like 10 videos. I'm not just picking one person and they get all of my attention and because there's yeah. so much information. So it's like, I wonder if you're the same way where you realize, you know, I'm just one of many people that, that others might digest the content from. I'm not, it's not like they're only going to watch me or they're only going to watch the other person. Have you sort of struggled with that too? Yeah. I think that's like very apt. Like that you're just one piece of, of this puzzle. Um, and, and my situation is kind of unique because if you go and look at my, my YouTube channel, I'm trying to do the really hard thing, which is like almost exclusively performance videos. Whereas, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's sort of difficult to, to get a following by that because, uh, on social media, you see a video, oh, that's just like another dude playing the trumpet, whatever, mm -hmm. scroll, scroll, scroll. But then, like, if I see something, like, it, with what you're doing, it's so much, like, easier to connect to, if that makes any sense, because there's, like, more of a personal element. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, the performance video side of it is is really difficult, and, like, I've gone out and I've like, I think I have, like, one review video up that's that's still up, and it's uh, reviewing Barkley microphones. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, I like I said, I can crank out a multi-track in, like, 24 hours or 48 hours, and that's, like, 
my workflow is so optimized for that. And then like, I tried to do this video for, for Mike Barkley and it was like a week of frustration because it's like, Oh, I got to get this camera shot just right. And then like, I got to align the audio and video and get the mic set up perfectly. And like all the lighting and, and the, and that's just the shooting. Oh, and then I have to have a script and I got to read from the script or, or like somehow, you know, I'm sure you've, you've all gathered that I, I'm verbose. I'm not concise. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then it, you get to the editing and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a slog. Yeah. And and so for me, like the performance video side of things, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people out there doing it, but I'm sort of okay with that now because I'm doing my thing and it's cool if people like it. It's cool if people don't like it. I'm just going to do my thing. And it's 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 for me. I mean, yeah, it's 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 for other people, but like I'm doing this cuz I needed a way to stay involved in music through the pandemic. And I needed to create something. I needed to make something. I've I've always been that way. I'm either like if I'm not playing horns, I'm tweaking them, building them, changing lead pipes, uh to the point where I like learned how to do it myself. So I don't have to spend hundreds of dollars at a shop to get a pipe installed and, um, or like woodworking or now I make mouthpieces. It's just like, I always have to be making something. So this was my, uh, my way. And then as life comes back, I'm like, well, I still really like this. So let's just do it. Yeah. I, I, I've really struggled with the, doing it for other people, doing it for me thing, because so much of my content is educational, right? It is, yeah. it's not for me, <laughs> you know, I know the thing, or at least I feel like I have something worth sharing. And so I've really had to lean into the value of the skills that I am acquiring as the main driver for why it's worth doing rather yeah. than I get a satisfaction of putting a video together or learning or performing in a particular thing. You know, like you said, learning about lighting, learning about editing, how to make the video a little bit better, like the craft, like the 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 craft, or I guess the the process of developing the craft more and more and more has become what's made it worth it. And then I just really hope that I'm saying it in such a way that people can connect with it, so that it can become worth it for them. Because I've really, like I said, I've really struggled with I'm doing this for other people, and it seems like nobody's watching, and it seems like nobody cares. So why am I doing it? And I just know if I kept it with that as the motivation, I would quit because it's just like I just do other things, you know. And so mm -hmm. it's interesting to try to find a reason that will keep you in the game long enough to amass enough content that people will see what's going on and respond to it. That's just like how you have to do it. If this is something you want to do long-term, if you want to make a few videos that will supplement something that you care about while you go do something else, that's totally fine. But if you're someone who wants to interact and build some sort of community or following, like you gotta be doing this for a long time. And exactly. Yeah. Just the idea of what is my reason for doing it? And I would say, it can't be for others because it'll be a long time before others respond in the way that you want them to. I'm just now drawing all these parallels to auditioning. Like it's a war of attrition mm -hmm. basically. And it's the exact same thing yeah. with, with, with content creation. 
and you know it's it's just you have to like you said amass a following you have to have enough content out there like oh this dude did one video is he gonna do more well 150 videos later yes i am gonna do more right. but you don't know that from the beginning mm-hmm. um well, just, and are, like, sorry and are you committed um, to this thing that you say you're doing you know like is yeah. this actually something that you are like what you've talked about with the performance videos? If you put one out, that will be awesome. But when you put out 150 or like Chris Smith is at like 400 or whatever, you know, it's like, yes, I'm committed to this is a thing that I am aiming to provide because I I find that there's value in it, you know. And so I think that's a part of it, too, is I don't want to say you have to prove yourself, but it's kind of in that way of showing your audience that, that you are committed to providing this uh, and that it's that they maybe it's earning. I don't know. You know what I'm saying, though, you know? Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, talking about so there, there's a couple things that you, you've talked about that I want to touch on. One, um, I really, really like what you said way back about making each one a little bit better. That was that was my goal with each and every video is can I do just one thing better? And 150 videos later, okay, yeah, I went from in my uh, trash heap of a of a practice room where you can see like the shelf with a whole bunch of like junk on the back and and mutes and water bottles and all sorts of crap. Okay, that looks kind of nasty. Okay, what happens if we like put up a, a curtain and then you know, oh, this is a dollar store uh, vinyl curtain that's all wrinkly. Okay. <laughs> Maybe let's find something a little nicer. Oh, hey, I found this cool paisley curtain at a garage sale for $2. Sure, let's do that. And then, okay, what if it was a black background? Black is really just, you know, it's like an ambiance, and it it gives sort of like a recital hall vibe Mm -hmm, to it. For sure. Um, Okay, cool. Now my lighting sucks. (laughs) How do we fix that? Um, And that's a rabbit hole if if there's ever a rabbit hole. Yeah, if you think microphones are trying to figure out audio recording, trying to get video down is okay. And then like, oh yeah, I've got this microphone, and then I got you know I'm a, I'm an equipment junkie, and it not just trumpet playing equipment. It's microphones and cameras and stuff, and it's it's a disease. Um, <laughs> then I got introduced to to Mike Barkley with these Barkley microphones, which are you know ribbon microphones made in Northern Ireland and. Really good. I really like mine. Um, and so so I got one of those, and it came, like, the day after my birthday, which was cool. And then just like, oh, there's a jump in quality there. And then, okay, I finally feel like I'm getting everything that I possibly can out of my iPhone. Because most of my early videos, they were just iPhone videos. Oh, wow. I didn't and, know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From, uh, it would have been, like, April 2021 like a year it's only been a year since i've had like a real real camera um so like okay you know you've got your lighting sort of figured out okay what can we do with camera angles when you're in this tiny space and then you know all of a sudden i have a studio space and you know it's it's a lot bigger now and it's it's cool that you know it 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 can seem daunting really to 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 undertake stuff like this, but it and it's you know it is an investment both time wise, effort wise, and, and financially. To to say that it isn't is straight up lying to you. 
But if it's it's like trumpet playing, you're not going to go from not being able to double tongue to being able to play like Carnival Venice variations overnight. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that way with 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 this either. I mean, it's just like you're making something do a little bit better each day. And then, you know, two years later, OK, this is this is something. So I like that. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is in doing this, I've become a much better trumpet player, a much better musician. Like, I, I feel like that is sort of understated, but um, I, I haven't learned more about, like, playing in a section and intonation as I have recording myself, yeah. which is, is super cool. Same here, for sure. And then I learn how, like, so I learn how to play underneath myself, like, oh, this is what I would want out of a second trumpet player. And then I show up to a, a, a gig and all of a sudden I'm playing second trumpet. Okay, well, I know what to do. And then playing principal trumpet, it was like, well, I know how I need to play so that I can play second trumpet to myself. I need to do that on the gig. And, you know, it's and then, you know, just burning through so much repertoire. You you become a better reader. You you get better at at playing things better, intonation, yada yada yada, all the good stuff. Yeah, that's such a cool takeaway. You know, like it's a similar thing for me. It's just I I feel like I was talking about this last night with some friends. Um, sometimes we think that the thing that makes it worth it is the immediate payoff, but when you don't realize, oh, if I do video and audio production, I'm going to become a better trumpet player. Like that's not why you got into that thing, but now that you've had that effect, I'm sure it's double, like double or triple your double or triple, I guess, glad that you did it. If you want to say it. that's a dumb way to say it, but um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so much more glad that I did this because not only did I get the audio video production out of it, but I also got to play the trumpet better. And I think practicing the trumpet and certain things that we do that seem like they're not going to give us the biggest payoff right out of the gate also have that kind of effect where it's like, well, I'm really glad I did this thing. I learned this piece. I slowed down here. I did this. It's just, I feel like learning in general is like that. It's this cumulative effect of everything you come across. It's not just this one direct path that you take to get there as quickly as possible. And sometimes these things on the outside are actually what speed up our learning because we're learning about it without spending time doing it, if that's a way to say it. Yeah. For sure. You want to tell us a little bit about venture mouthpieces before we uh, get out of here? Yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of things that sort of happen organically and naturally, um, I, I think all of – I want to preface this with everything that's happened to me through venture has been a direct result of being so visible and having so many videos and, and just being, you know, a content creator. Uh, that being said um, – so it was like a year and a half ago, two years ago, I saw this ad for a uh, mouthpiece company. And it was like, we have this software. You can design anything you want and we'll make it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Scroll. I watched the whole video. I watched the whole ad. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like I said, scroll. And I didn't think of it. And then... Uh, I was working with uh, Greg Black. Uh, I bought a, a really cool four-valve flugelhorn from Van Lahr. And uh, I also bought a, a Greg Black mouthpiece with it. 
So uh, my mouthpiece that he was copying the rim off was was down in the area, and and those they're like only a couple hours apart. And I had started to hear about venture through I think it was my buddy Mike Barkley was was prototyping some of the their lead commercial kit, and then John Kaplan did a video on on venture stuff. And I reached out to John. I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool. What's the deal with this? And he goes, oh, it's cool. And John and I have, like, for the last 10 years, we we just geek out together about trumpet mouthpieces and stuff. Um, so when I when it got the John seal of approval, I'm like, okay, this is this is kind of neat. Let's let's check this out. And then uh, a couple days later, Doug, the the founder, was on. Uh, one of these uh, interviews, it was a live interview, and uh, Ben Strickland goes, hey, I'm going to see you at the gig tomorrow. And so I called Ben. I'm like, hey, dude, uh, can you, instead of shipping my mouthpiece back to me, can you send it to Doug? I want to have him scan it and and digitize it. So that happened, and Doug wrote me this, uh, like he generated a report. He sent me the scans. And uh, he, he, he sent me a, a, a write-up of what you play is really weird. And I was like, yeah, of course, I know that. But then he goes, this is why it's weird. You have the rim diameter of a 1C, but the cup volume of a 10.5C. So, you know, you've got the, the diameter of a 1C with a cup volume of a 10.5C, and your backboard is, like, teeny tiny. It's amazing that you can get any sort of a sound at all out of that, let alone what you're doing. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And I had some ideas of, of what I wanted out of a mouthpiece. And I was going to start looking at trying to like figure out how to realize those changes in, in real life. But there was kind of a pandemic going on and I wanted to like go somewhere and try stuff. So uh, I, I played around in the software and I sort of mocked up an idea, but then Doug and I hopped on Zoom and we came up with, in very short order, three tops and three backboards to, to prototype sort of what I was looking to go for. And so I think we met on Monday and by Wednesday I had those prototypes in hand. It was ridiculously quick. Um, they were not raw brass they were they were brush plated so very thin silver plating and it was good enough for me to test and we were really close with one of the things but i thought i wanted to open the throat size up and so i said hey can we can you send me a new one or do you want me to send this back and you open it up and he goes well you have a lathe right you could just uh open that up yourself and you know save shipping costs and time so i opened it up and i thought i ruined it and then the next day I went to go play it. And I'm like, okay, this is actually what I was looking for. I was just tired by that point. And then such a change so suddenly. So we settled on the first design and I got it in a one piece. And it was cool because I had these brass prototypes. But it was like we weren't sure that that was the way to go with the brass prototypes because the, the silver plating was really thin and, and wore down. I wasn't associated with the company yet. That was just like how things worked. Yeah. And then 
out of that first set of three, I actually had a combination that worked really well for rotary trumpet. So I ordered one of those too. And Doug sent me the this message. He goes, hey, I'm trying to get this uh, this lead kit out and in the hands of more like classical players. Uh, can you, like, can we work up a deal where if you make this video, uh, I'll give you one of the pieces out of the lead kit. I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. So he sent me the kit, and I found what I liked the most. And I was kind of dragging my feet on getting everything going with that video. And then we came up with this idea that I had, because I have this four-valve Vanlar flugelhorn. I wanted a mouthpiece that I could, like, sound like Sergei in the low register, which I know that's a, a very tall order, but, you know, just to have that sort of facility down there. And I had this mouthpiece that uh, somebody had sold to me. It was a euphonium player that was trying to learn how to play flugelhorn. So it was this uh, euphonium mouthpiece with a giant, like, cross between a trombone and a trumpet rim, and I was like, can we, like, do something like this, but better? <laughs> and so I sent some stuff down for Doug to scan. I'm like, well, I kind of like the rim off of this tenor horn mouthpiece. But, like, I want something that I can just plug into Flugel, not have to move my tuning slide, not have to, like, swap lead pipes or anything. And I want to be able to play at least in the staff, but I want this thing to just absolutely sing at the bottom of the staff, below the staff, and into the pedal registers, which is a very tall order. So we hop on Zoom, try to figure this thing out, and we, we came up with an idea. And I said, well, let's, let's do it. Let's make it. And I, I was like, man, this is so cool. And then he called me, and he was all geeked out. He was, like, showing me how it worked on his flugelhorn, and he's like, I'm a commercial trumpet player. I don't play – I play notes that are, like, three octaves above this. <laughs> and uh, I was like, cool, I'm super excited about this. And then we, we started talking, and I'm like, man, I've got so many ideas for projects, but I don't, like – I can't afford to, like, buy this many mouthpieces. I got to sell a horn or something. And and he goes, well, you should probably sell the horn because if you don't want it, it's just taking up space and do something cool with the money, but don't buy mouthpieces with it. I'm like, why? You not want to work with me anymore? He goes, no, check your email. And so uh, he he made me an artist. And so I was a, a, an artist for a little bit, and then it just sort of naturally evolved from that. Like he needed a video made. And he's got, you know, he's got crazy, like, he's got skills with the video editing and, you know, he can do uh, stuff in After Effects and, like, do effects and, and um, you know, animation and stuff. So he's, he's really great at all that, but he's a busy man. You know, he's designing software for people to design mouthpieces and he's running the lathe. And I'm like, well, dude, I make videos. Like, let me just take care of this. And so it sort of naturally evolved to, I guess I work for him now. <laughs> and then uh, we, we, we got into 3D printing with uh, uh, one, of, uh, one of our guys, Mike Barkley. That name keeps coming up. Uh, he's in Ireland. And to ship stuff over to him for prototyping is not cheap. 
and it takes a long time. So to speed up that process, Doug goes, well, we could just make STL files and, and 3D print mouthpieces, and it'll be like kind of close enough to, uh, to, to prototype. So uh, we were doing FDM printing, which is like the, the hot glue gun, like what you think of when you think 3D printing probably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the accuracy on that's like okay at best. But then we got into resin printing and Doug was like, hey, I'm going to buy a resin printer. And then like the next day he sends me a video of him playing a double C on a 3D printed mouthpiece. He goes, I, th- I think this will work. Do you want to be like R&D for the 3D printing mouthpieces department? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. So uh, he sent me a 3D printer and I started just testing things because how, how we got into the, the SLA printing was, was, was like that. He, he wanted to try it. And so I got into that, but I wasn't ready to run the printer myself yet. I just didn't have, like, I didn't have the space built for it because F, uh, SLA printers are smelly, like they give off noxious fumes and <laughs> it's uh, possibly hazardous. Um, and so we were kind of on a time crunch. We were about ready to go to Midwest and we were hoping to have a product out and it didn't get launched. And I was like, I have this idea for a cornet mouthpiece. And I had been working on my own personal cornet mouthpiece. And it was like, well, what if we just scaled that? So I contacted a 3D printing shop local to me. And I said, hey, if uh, I send you files, can you print them out? What's the cost? And it was like $45 each. I'm like, okay, well, that's a little steep, but, you know, it's cheaper than a brass mouthpiece. So I scaled my design to different diameters, and it worked, sort of. They, they weren't trumpet players there, so when they printed it, they printed it in a – they printed the rim on the build plate, and then that left it really jagged and nasty when they took it off, so then they sanded the crap out of it and destroyed the rim contour. <laughs> but the cup was kind of all right, and the – it was sort of close to tolerance, like it was within a couple thousandths of an inch. And so I, I handed those off to a couple people. I'm like, hey, try this. Let me know what you think. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this design works in different sizes. And it just so happened that one of the guys that I handed a mouthpiece to knew this other guy who it was in the Spartan marching band. His name's Ryan Cochet. Shout out to Ryan. He was a big help for me. Um, he, he was in the Spartan marching band, but taught the school's intro to 3D printing course and ran the university 3D printing shop. So I got hooked up with him, and I came up with like 12 models, and we printed all of them at a much better rate than $45 a mouthpiece. And... I came up with this line of cornet mouthpieces. And so I, I called up Doug. I'm like, hey, uh, I got a, a cornet line ready to go if we can get them up and running by Midwest. And so I designed a line of 12 mouthpieces of different sizes and rim shapes. And it's kind of a cool design concept. It's for, like, trumpet players that want to also play cornet, but they want to have that, like, traditional British brass band sound quality without the without having to work as hard as like a wick, no letter mouthpiece, you know, if you, if you're already like well-versed into the British brass band thing 
and you're playing on that equipment, getting the right sound and you've adjusted to it, my pieces don't actually work for that. But like this line is to bridge that. And so I, I sent, sent Doug these files without him knowing anything. And it had only been like a week since he sent me my final, like my cornet mouthpiece. So we got those up and running at Midwest and it was just, it was cool. And while we were at Midwest and talking face to face, it was like, well, what if we, uh, what if we had like consultations where instead of, you know, you design your own mouthpiece, like there's going to be people like me and John Kaplan and, and, you know, there are people out there that just send me files be like, Hey, can you print this out? But I feel like most people have an idea of the result that they want out of the mouthpiece, but they don't know what to change to get to that. And it's scary. And it's even scarier when you have to design something and then commit to it and buy a mouthpiece for $205. And so the 3D printing option for prototyping exists, and you can try it now for $25. Wow. Or if you want to try, like, two different things, okay, it's $20 a mouthpiece, and then a $5 shipping fee to anywhere within the United States. So, like, people send me files, and I 3D print them, or, like, people, you know, hook up with me on Zoom, and then you know, we figure out, okay, what do you want? And then I print them up, and then I've got a scanner here over over in the side of my room, and I can verify that the prints are within tolerance before they go out. So you know the internal dimensions of this mouthpiece are going to be the same as whatever you order in brass, and it's just a, like 5% different between brass and the resin. Wow. That technology is amazing. I mean... Thank you. It's pretty amazing. It's so cool to hear how you got involved again, just very organically, like you said. It wasn't... Yeah. Yo, I got to go work for Venture. It was like, no, oh, let's just see what's there. You know, I like those kinds of, yeah. I mean, personally, I really like those kinds of collaborations. You just kind of see what's there and how it goes. Um, I'm starting to generate more content for Houghton Horns in a, mm -hmm. in a similar way. You know, I made some videos for them that just came out reviewing a few trumpets and they were like, this is kind of cool. And then we started to talk about, well, like, what would it be like to do either more of this or other types of projects? So... Um, it's just a, like hearing your story, I guess, is, and then sort of comparing it to mine. It's just, it's just encouraging, you know, that like, you never really know where something can go. And it's just like being willing to continue to work and to continue to get better. At least that's my take from, from your story. Uh, is there any sort of final things that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say, or sort of in a way that you want to sum things up? I don't know. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll I'll leave with this. Everything that I've like thought that I wanted to do has been like not dead end, but it's like every time I go into something thinking like, oh, I want to do this, and it doesn't ever pan out the way I thought it did. But like my willingness to just go with the flow, for lack of a better way to say it, has always led to just these amazing opportunities opening up and like it's shaped the person that I've become and it's, it's always been for the better. Yeah. That's so cool. If anybody's interested in hearing about, you know, maybe consulting with you for venture or they just want to reach out and say they really appreciate 
uh, your, you know, the, your episode, or maybe they want to do like a, you know, a collaboration on creating some, some performance content. How would people get in touch with you? So, uh, for the music stuff and just like personal stuff, uh, my, my Facebook page cookies music, I believe it's, so it's cookies music is the name of the page, but the URL is facebook.com slash David cook music. That's day David K O C H. Um, you can go to my website, cookiesmusic.com. Um, and there's a contact me form there. If you want to reach out about venture stuff, uh, shoot me an email. It's cookie, C-O-O-K-I-E, at venture, V-E-N-N-T-U-R-E dot M-P. Awesome. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at thatsnotspit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, I would really appreciate it if you would give this a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share this episode on social media so other people can find it. David, this has been great. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. It's great to get to know you and to hear just about your story and kind of how things have panned out. Uh, like I said, for me, it's very encouraging, and I hope it's encouraging for others as well. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. You can check out Brandon's work on epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.